Rachel. And this is Unassigned Reading, where we discuss the books you're never going to talk about in English class. Right. YA, sci-fi, fantasy, and all the other genres you read for fun. Obviously, this is not a spoiler-free podcast. So many spoilers. And I hope you're ready for some angst. Yeah, because it's time for the angstiest of all Harry Potter books, Order of the Phoenix. Yeah, we've got brooding Harry, Voldemort's return to power, some truly evil teachers, secret underground defense against the dark arts clubs, and the death of a much-beloved character. Basically, it's gonna get dark. But first, it's time to do our 60-second summary, which should be super easy. It's only 870 pages of material. (laughs) Could we just, like, skip it this week? I'm Maybe sh- you're gonna do great. It'll I'm be heart palpitation. <laughs> you're gonna do great. Ready, set, go. Okay. Um, Harry's back with the Dursleys. He's attacked by Dementor- by Dementors along with Dudley. He's expelled from Hogwarts. Has to go to a hearing. He's taken back to the headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix. He and Dumbledore go to the hearing, and he manages not to get expelled. But obviously, the Ministry is now like super against Harry and Dumbledore. Back at Hogwarts, there's a new defense against the Dark Arts teacher Umbridge, who is sent there by the Ministry. Basically, the Ministry is interfering at Hogwarts. Also, she's basically evil. She tortures students. She takes over the school, kicks out Dumbledore. Harry and the others are kind of fighting back by trying to learn defensive spells anyway in this secret defense against the Dark Arts group that they call Dumbledore's army. Also. Harry's having visions. Over Christmas, he sees Mr. Weasley attacked by a snake, and he starts taking Occlumency lessons with Snape to try and stop the visions, though it doesn't seem to be helping very much. So then he sees a vision of Sirius being taken by Voldemort during his owls. Harry and co. go to the ministry on... um, um, Thestral to try and save him, but it's a trap to get Harry to acquire the prophecy for him. They fight. The Order shows up. Sirius dies. Dumbledore and Voldemort fight. Voldemort possesses Harry. Then the Ministry shows up, and Voldemort flees. Now, everybody knows the truth about Voldemort's return, and Dumbledore Stop. finally tells Harry... Stop. Stop. About the prophecy. Okay. That was impressive. Clearly, you prepared ahead of time, but it was impressive. I mean, to be fair, if I had not prepared ahead of time, you would I, have would had have no gotten, I would have gotten to, like, Umbridge shows up at Hogwarts. I did not think you were going to make it. You spent a lot of time on the Dementors at the beginning. I was like, oh, boy, she's not going to get through this one I at all. I spent, like, two words on the Dementors. It was 12 seconds. That's like a quarter of your time, nearly. So yeah, that was a pretty good surface level summary. Obviously, you skipped a lot of details. I mean, obvious, but I mean, I hit basic points. That you did, you did. I think, you know, I could add things, but you got a lot of it. You didn't really talk about Hagrid's whole storyline, where Hagrid doesn't show up to school for a long time. True, um, I mean, honestly, in regards to the larger storyline not super relevant like they're they're one of the interesting things about this book because it's so jam-packed full and that's one of the things when I was trying to figure out how I was going to summarize this book that I had trouble with but there are a lot of sort of b plots yes that don't necessarily that are interesting and important but don't necessarily contribute to the really underlying narrative of the story yeah I'd actually forgotten how big like the Quidditch subplot was there's this whole Quidditch subplot going on, and in the overall scheme of the book, it has nothing to do with the end. Like, you forget about it if you haven't read it recently. But it it's a big focus of Harry's and Fred and George's throughout the year. Also, yeah, you didn't they mention, get kicked off the Quidditch team. <laughs> you also didn't mention uh, Fred and George at all, which I, while not well, important again, to the plot, maybe, is one of the best parts of the book. It, I mean, it's a great moment, but again, Sarah, you gave me <laughs> 60 seconds to summarize how many, an 870 page book is that what you said that is what i said yes that's too many pages 
And it's a good number of pages. Um, so the other thing, you sort of missed the end where Dumbledore finally tells Harry about the prophecy. Yeah, right. The prophecy, of course, which I came in right after the end of the timer on that one. And I think we'll definitely talk about this more a little later in the episode. But basically, the prophecy is just that, just, that Harry, it, it's, it's basically why we call Harry the Chosen One. You know, it says that Harry's the one with the power to defeat the Dark Lord, although actually it could have been someone else. And again, we'll probably touch we'll on that there. a little bit more later. And also that essentially one of them is probably going to have to kill the other. No ifs, ands, or buts we'll about it. We'll get there. <laughs> we'll get there, too. Yeah, we'll definitely touch more on the prophecy. So I think, though, we should start at sort of the beginning. And something that becomes very, very apparent from the first couple of pages is that Harry's not doing so good in this book. Yeah, he's really not. And, you know, I think it's really interesting because I think we've discussed this a little bit before, but I'm not sure that we've actually said it so far in this episode. The fifth Harry Potter book is our favorite book. Yes. By far. It's so good. Yeah, and I think rereading it has only kind of reaffirmed that in our minds. Obviously, Harry's dealing with a lot more trauma, and this book, it's really angsty. And we're seeing a lot of Harry's external manifestations of all of the trauma that he's been through. And, I mean, there are a lot of other reasons I love it, too, but I think kind of finally getting to see some of the fallout of the things that he's been to and some reactions to that. And, yeah, I just, I really love kind of finally getting that payoff. And I think it's interesting that his actions maybe come across, you know, as whiny or unnecessarily mean or aggressive or whatever to some people, when I actually think that that's one of the aspects of this book that I really love, because we're finally sort of seeing the expression and some of this trauma being dealt with. Yeah, because Harry's been through a lot, and in the first four books, he doesn't deal with it a whole lot. Like, he doesn't want to go home for Christmas, but, like, he was in a very abusive situation growing up. Like, he was clearly neglected and unloved, and... Yes. And then in the first three books, at the end of every year, there's some sort of giant battle, usually sort of Voldemort adjacent. Yeah, it's sort of surprising that he hasn't had that he hasn't really had any issues with that until this point although like to be fair things get much much worse at the end of book four than they've been before yes before we dive any deeper into this because i'm about to dive really deep (laughs) i want to just give a quick little warning here to anybody who might be concerned we are as you can probably already tell we're going to touch on some sensitive subjects here including childhood trauma and child neglect and abuse and post-traumatic stress disorder so if any of that might be concerning for you then just maybe go ahead and skip ahead a little bit and we'll be moving on to some other interesting subjects after that so this is not going to be the whole entire episode but it probably is going to be the whole first part of it (laughs) so that's just a little heads up there So yeah, trauma in Harry Potter and specifically in Harry Potter 5. So (laughs) this is kind of one of those times where I'm getting to like pull out my college degrees, (laughs) which is fun because I'm the kind of person who has college degrees that people are like, what, what are you going to do with those? And mine are actually kind of useful to my life. But for anybody who doesn't know, which is probably most people listening to this, I double majored in child development and English literature when I was in college. (laughs) And... That might seem like a weird combo, but, you know, it works. And I actually had the opportunity to take a really cool class in college on the psychology and child development of Harry Potter. You know how at the beginning of every episode we're like, these aren't the books you're going to talk about in English class? (laughs) Well, we kind of lied because Rachel straight up studied these in school. (laughs) Yeah, straight up took actually more than one class on Harry Potter in college. (laughs) 
Although technically for one of them, I was the teacher's assistant, but you know, you know. So anyway, yeah, I've, I've studied some of this before, so I kind of want to touch on a little bit of that stuff because obviously I find child development and psychology really fascinating. And I think there are some really interesting ways we can look at some of the theories and ideas from that in relation to Harry Potter. So I want to start a little bit by talking about trauma up to this point in the series. So we're going to do a bit of a retrospective. So like you said, Harry's had a lot of trauma in his life. Like a lot. And we know from from book three that he does have some limited degree of memory of Voldemort's attack on him when he was a baby and his parents' death. And we know that it's had some lingering effects because, well, of his reactions to Dementors in that book and his longing for paternal figures and people like the Weasleys and Hagrid and Sirius. We also know that he's faced a number of traumatic experiences, like you said, pretty much at the end of every book, including facing Voldemort, at least when you're talking about from the point of book three. He's already faced Voldemort twice. He's nearly died way more often than that. He's faced off against the man whose betrayal led to his parents' death, not to mention a number of highly dangerous magical creatures, which brings us to book four, in which Harry faces probably what is his greatest trauma yet up to this point, being kidnapped by Voldemort, witnessing the murder of one of his classmates, and actually being tortured before escaping and then immediately being taken by another dark wizard who wants to kill him. So basically, needless to say, Harry has faced some serious trauma. And that's really, that's only the more, you know, quote unquote, I hate to say it like this, but like exciting stuff, you know? I mean, we haven't, you briefly mentioned the Dursleys earlier, yeah. um, and they they really do bear mentioning because the Dursleys were Harry's primary caretakers throughout essentially his entire childhood, from about age one to age eleven. Yeah, and they were at best, from what we see on the page, neglectful at yeah. best, and very likely at least verbally abusive. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that they are from what we see. That I, I think they probably are too, but you know, I, we're talking best to less yeah. best case scenario there and even when you're talking about just a neglectful situation in childhood that's still that's really an abusive environment just in a different way and it's still extremely harmful for child development so that's not to say that that's any less terrible so basically what i'm saying is that harry's been through a lot probably explains some things about him I think, you know, we could see maybe a little bit of that in his tendency to be both overly trusting and mistrusting of authority figures and things like that. And he also has a pretty high risk factor, I would say, because of those things for more adverse effects because of how turbulent and traumatic his upbringing was. So basically, the question that poses for us is how is he doing as well as he is? Because we're going to get more into sort of some of the manifestations of trauma that we're seeing in book five, but all things considered, he's a very well-adjusted kid. Yeah. So how... How does that happen? Like, how, how did we get to that point? So the thing I want to talk about in relation to that are some ideas from child development. And these ideas are resilience and protective factors. I found this really great definition of what resilience is in terms of child development on the Encyclopedia of Early Childhood Development website, just so we can sort of have a foundation to build on. Resilience is children showing healthy development in spite of adversity pretty easy to follow. Yeah. And there are a couple of different contexts that we can look at to examine resilience, but essentially we're looking at three different spheres of influence that act upon how resilient uh, a child is likely going to be. So the first one is within the child himself, the second is within the family, and the third is within community interactions, interactions between the child and the community that they live in. Let's go through and kind of look at Harry through 
those three different spheres of influence. Okay. So in terms of Harry himself, when we're looking at his childhood, we have a brief period of really good home life during his first year, at least assumedly, from everything we know about James and Lily and his first year of life. I think we can assume that it was a pretty good year and he was well taken care of, well loved. Yeah. And then he went through a long period of neglect and abuse. And then a period in late childhood and early adolescence of once again having caring and supportive adult and authority figures in his life. So that's sort of, you know, family factors. Mm-hmm. As far as community factors, we can probably guess that or at least I would guess that Harry probably had kind of middling success there. School was probably fine, although we know that he was bullied. Maybe he had some good teachers. We just really don't know a lot about that aspect of his childhood. He wasn't really starved that we know of, though again, we know his nutrition wasn't great. Dumbledore even kind of alludes to that himself at the end of the book when he says that Harry came to Hogwarts neither as happy nor as well-nourished as he would have liked. But I think we do have reason to believe that Harry had pretty strong internal resilience and i would base that on the fact that a again he seems to be pretty well adjusted and b he reacts fairly well to change and adversity and i mean just all the extremely stressful situations that he keeps finding himself in because there are a lot yeah so some examples of these internal protective factors that i think we can see in harry that are probably contributing to his resilience are One, his easygoing temperament. I would say Harry does a fairly decent job of going along with the flow. I mean, when he's 11 years old, he finds out he's straight up a wizard. Yeah. Um, That's a bit of a surprise. I don't think... I mean, most kids would be stoked, but I think they still might be a little more shocked. Yeah. You're just kind of like, like, oh, oh, okay. Cool, cool, cool. Yeah. All right. It makes sense. Um, I'll go with you, strange man. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, sure. Better than the Dursleys. Let's go. I think he has fairly positive expectations of himself. He has definitely a strong sense of independence. He has fairly good communication skills and definitely good problem-solving skills. He has a good ability, or at least a decent ability, to identify, manage, and express emotion. I actually think to touch a little bit on book five, we do see a really good example of it in this book that I wanted to point out specifically, because there's a great scene where Harry's just found out that Ron has been made prefect. And he doesn't take it super well. He kind of has a brief freak out. But then he acknowledges that he did kind of expect, if he had been expecting anything, that he would have been made prefect, that that's not really fair, and that he's no more deserving of it than Ron. And essentially, he just has this moment where he acknowledges his jealousy and works through it. And honestly, really shows some maturity, I think, even beyond his age in the way that he reacts to that and handles it. Oh, yeah. On his own. So I think he definitely shows the ability to manage and express emotions very, or at least fairly well, all things considered. And he also has for sure the ability to develop positive and lasting relationships because we see him do that just time and time again throughout the series. So yeah, I think between his high degree of internal protective factors, because that's really, you know, I was listing the ones that he lines up with, but that's like most, if not all of them, (laughs) that he lines up with. And the fact that we know he did have some healthy attachments in his early life to Lily and James, and again, a little bit in later childhood. I think that's part of what led to a high degree of resilience in Harry. Basically, you know, those things were working as protective factors to lead to a healthy trajectory of development. And we could talk more about, you know, secure attachments and stuff like that, but that's just a whole nother thing. So we're just not gonna... (laughs) Yeah. We're just not really going to go into that. Right we still now. haven't gotten to book five. so Yeah, exactly. So that sort of leads us up to book five. And then what I'm seeing in book five is a lot of response to trauma. Like I mentioned, yes. at the end of book four, Harry went through really the biggest trauma yet in his life. You know, you could argue that maybe his parents' death were worse, but 
he was too young to really remember that well. And also, I, in some ways, I think he was a less active participant in that. You know, yeah, of course. In, in terms of what happened at the graveyard, he was actively fighting Voldemort and he was actively tortured. And yeah, it was a very traumatic experience. And, you know, I think what we see in book five is him kind of trying to cope with that experience. We know he's having nightmares about the events at the end of book four, about the graveyard and Cedric's mm-hmm. death. That's mentioned several times throughout the book, including in a taunt from Dudley that Harry reacts very aggressively to yeah. right before the Dementors attack them. I think that's that, that tendency toward anger and frustration is just definitely a response to all of the grief and trauma that he's been yes. feeling. We see him yelling a lot more than we have in any of the other books. We see him taking out his frustrations, particularly on Ron and Hermione, which on a side yeah. note, I also think is kind of interesting just because I wonder if subconsciously he tends to be taking out his anger on them more because he knows that they will take it you know that he's not going to lose them over that so that's kind of off subject but i do think that's interesting we see him acting recklessly although that's not necessarily out of character for him and just like unable to hold his tongue even around umbridge even though he knows she's dangerous and he's been like warned multiple times like don't yeah. mess with Umbridge. Yeah, and and, and all of that's kind of condensed and bottled up in the scene at the end after Sirius dies where, you know, he yells and he runs and he destroys half of Dumbledore's office and he's basically rapid fire cycling through the stages of grief and he's just undergone another pretty serious trauma and this time lost someone very close to him as a result of it. Yeah. So all of that <laughs> brings us kind of to a related point, which I know you also wanted to talk about, at least I think mm-hmm. you did, which is how all this trauma is maybe affecting Harry. Because we've mm-hmm. talked a little bit about why maybe he's been able to cope as well as he has with all of this trauma and adversity. But we definitely see it affecting him more in this book in more negative ways. And I just laid out quite a few of those effects, but it's never explicitly stated. And maybe you know, show more strongly, I can think of in some other books like The Hunger Games, but I think there is a strong case to be made for Harry possibly having post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that. So... Okay, ask away. <laughs> so, I, I sort of have two questions, and my first one was, based on sort of the text and what's implied, do we think Harry probably has PTSD? So, my answer is... I think you can make an argument for that. I don't think it's necessarily 100% intended. And I think you could also argue that, you know, he's just experiencing other kinds of emotional and mental turmoil Mm -hmm. because of all the trauma. But I definitely see him as fitting some of the symptoms, quite a few actually, of the symptoms of PTSD. Would you like me to like go through those really fast? Yeah, go through them really quick. Let's hear. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, PTSD is, and again, I'm drawing this definition off of several websites, including the department, U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs and Stanford Children's Health, which has some information about PTSD in children. But basically, PTSD is a condition following a traumatic event that causes someone to have persistent, frightening thoughts, memories, or flashbacks of that event, and it can be short-term or chronic. And there are a lot of symptoms. Most of these symptoms are true kind of from childhood through adults, but there are some that are more specific to adolescence that I think is interesting and I'll touch on again because Harry definitely fits that. But yeah, symptoms I think we see in Harry. Sleep disturbances, for sure. Like we talked about the nightmares. Feeling jittery or on edge. I think we could argue that we see this in Harry, especially at the beginning of the book in the summer when he's like, you know, he's trying to listen into the news and he's jumping at every sound. 
being yeah. easily startled. Again, you know, he like smashes his head into the window because he's so jumpy. Loss of interest, detachment, feeling numb. Again, I think we see Harry cycling through that occasionally throughout the series. Mm-hmm. In particular, one of the things that stuck out to me is there are several times in the series when he explicitly says that he can't decide if he wants to be alone or be with people. And every time he's he has one, he wants the other. Yeah. And he isolates himself several times. Here's a big one. Irritability or increased aggression. Oh my goodness, yes. he's got that one a lot. See literally all of book five. I mean, I think this is the first time we ever see Harry get into a fist fight is in this book, I think. Yeah, I think you're right. (laughs) Normally, he uses the wand. And then I wanted to particularly emphasize this note that I found on the VA website because it's talking about some of the symptoms that may differ in adolescents and children for PTSD. And it says, adolescents are more likely than younger children or adults to exhibit impulsive and aggressive behavior. And I think that is one of the biggest sort of differences we see in Harry in this book is he's markedly, I think, angrier and more aggressive than he is in a lot of the other books. I would say he's even, like, I think Harry's always a little impulsive, but I think he's more impulsive. I agree. He's he's always, to some extent, those things. I mean, he's a Gryffindor. He's brash and reckless. He always is. But I agree. I think those things are all decidedly heightened in this book. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would argue that I think there's a strong possibility that he maybe has PTSD in this book. I'd agree. Is I that think, is that your feeling as well? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think obviously it's not made clear, um, which is a thing that happens a lot in Harry Potter. There's like yeah, there's not subtext as much dealing it. with trauma as I think we would like. Yes. Overall, and that sort of leads me into my second question, which is so. If we do think Harry has PTSD, do we think the way it's shown in the book is like is a good way of showing it? Ooh, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean, I guess my first answer would be that I don't think it's necessarily, and again, I'm by no means an expert on PTSD or really anything. I don't think it's necessarily showing any negative stereotypes of PTSD or like really much stereotypic behavior in general just because... I'm not at all convinced that it was intentional. Yeah. Just because I think it might have been a little more overt if it was. Right. You that's know, we don't my thinking actually too. we don't actually overtly see Harry experiencing a lot of the like main hallmarks of PTSD. We don't see him having flashbacks. And even though he is having enough nightmares that I would say maybe that counts. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I don't I don't think it's really a negative portrayal because also, again, I think you could kind of argue either way. Yeah. I I think you could definitely see this book as representing Harry as having PTSD, but I also think you don't necessarily have to read it that way. Yeah, that's sort of what I think. It's very sort of walking line where it's sort of in between. Like, there's definitely a reading to be made where Harry has PTSD, but you can also read it as he doesn't. I think both, there are two ways to read it. And I do think if because of that like if he does have PTSD it's sort of subtle so I would say like if you're looking you know if you wanted to read a book with a character who has PTSD like you can probably say Harry does but it's not necessarily intentional so you're not gonna get yeah it's not about that and so it's sort of under the surface and maybe doesn't show all of the things you would expect if someone actually had which on the flip side could make it less good representation. Right. That's sort of, yeah, because it's in this sort of in-between place. It's not Yeah, and bad it's sort of the contextual but it's not reading. really good representation either. It's kind of somewhere in the middle. Um. <laughs> I feel like, is that going to be our thesis for representation in Harry Potter? Probably. <laughs> it's like, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah. 
like you said, I mean, we've talked a lot about the trauma and that's because it's probably the biggest part of the book. As I was taking notes, I would say more than half my notes were like, oh, look, Harry is showing a symptom of his yeah. like trauma. And, oh, oh, look, Harry's, having... Harry's screaming at somebody at the top of his lungs. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's a big part of the book, but it's a big book. So there are lots of other things going on, too, that I think yeah. we need to talk about. And another and... big part is, you know, the title, The Order of the Phoenix. We've got all of these groups and kind of this idea of political resistance going on. Yeah. And, you know, I think we touched on it a little bit in relation to the last book, but we've really experienced quite a big shift in the series. Voldemort is back. The Ministry is in denial and trying to discredit Harry and Dumbledore. We're entering into basically an entirely different political climate than anything we've seen before. Yeah. Fudge's treatment of Harry has completely changed over time. Yeah. Just night and day. He's gone from Harry yeah. being his poster child for all things good and lovely to saying that Harry's basically Harry's a maniac. the problem. Yeah. Yeah. He's the problem. Voldemort's not back. Harry's bad. You know? And sort of using journalism to get that point across. Yeah, the Daily um, Prophet is just entirely playing their own game. Sadly, we had a great discussion about sort of the groundwork that was laid for this, about Rita Skeeter and all of her terrible reporting practices in our last episode that was sadly lost in the great Harry Potter 4 recording debacle, <laughs> in which we lost like half of our audio. had to re-record and, and then... Re had to kind of try to remember what we talked about before and didn't quite remember <laughs> and that all just of it. got left by the wayside but yeah they, they've got there's this really premeditated campaign to delegitimize harry and dumbledore and all of the truthful claims that they're making about the return of voldemort because that's the ministry's agenda they don't yeah. want to acknowledge that voldemort might be and back. i think part of how they're so successful in that is also because the wizards the community, they don't want Voldemort back. They don't want to believe it. So all the ministry and has to do is sort of just nudge them in that direction. Like, of course Voldemort's not back. Harry's crazy. And then the populace is like, of course, yeah, Harry's right. crazy. Well, it's, That's it's fine as long as Voldemort's believe, not back. You know, the pretty lie rather than the very terrifying and disconcerting truth, which yeah. is, I think, what we see going on in this book. Definitely. But we do have these two groups that are sort of created to fight back against that and yes. the first one of course is the order of the phoenix which is they're fighting back against you know the very overt enemy against the rise of voldemort and his supporters and then the other is sort of doing it in a more i mean they're both covert but but this group is fighting back really against the political establishment like against the government refusing to acknowledge voldemort and you know the way that they're trying to keep people from they're trying to keep people from learning how to protect themselves yes and and that group is dumbledore's the da army. dumbledore's army and i think it's interesting that you know, it's sort of the parallels you see between those two groups mm -hmm. and both the ways in which they're fighting back, but also the groups in which they're fighting back and the parallels that that draw between, you know, the actual enemy and the people that are standing in the yeah. way of you fighting the enemy. Well, and it gets interesting, too, in the later books. We're going to see sort of 
Dumbledore's army merge a bit with the Order of the Phoenix. They're going to become closely tied together. Right, because, because Dumbledore's army really does become, even though it doesn't necessarily exist as such, maybe again until the seventh book, although we don't see that as much since we're reading from Harry's perspective and he's obviously off hunting horcruxes. But yeah, we, we see them sort of become their own resistance fighters against the sort of incursions from dark wizards and, you know, bad people into Hogwarts. And also some of them actually joining up with the order as they Mm -hmm. become old enough to do so yeah there's definitely it sort of becomes like order of the phoenix junior yeah it really does a way for the students who are too young for the order to still play a part because they want to fight back too they want to do what they can to help and and also to protect themselves because it's scary yeah it's a dark world out there I hate to interrupt this excellent discussion, but we need to talk about another great book podcast for a second. Do you mean Loaded Lit? That's the one. And if you like literary analysis, these guys really get into it. They choose a new book each month to break down over the course of several episodes. Also, themed food and drinks to go along with it. But maybe we should just let them explain it. Yeah, they'll probably do a better job of it than we are. and booze? Do you like themed food? Do you like a mixture of high and lowbrow? Well then, welcome to Loaded Literature. We're your hosts. I'm Victoria. I'm Hale. And I'm Anya. This podcast began as a book club that expanded beyond our reading room. We cover one book in a month and break it down by analysis, background context, and adaptions, all of which will be paired with alcohol and food. So please come join our book club. Episodes air Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific time, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find us on social media at LoadedLiteraturePodcast.com, LoadedLitPod on Twitter, or LoadedLiteratures on Instagram. We all have our own individual social media, so please follow us there as well and come join the conversation. Okay, let's get back to the Order of the Phoenix. And in book five in particular, like, they are actively being prevented from learning how to protect themselves. Yeah, which I think is a great segue to another thing that we have to talk about in relation to book five, which is Umbridge. I mean, you cannot talk about Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix without talking about Umbridge. (laughs) Yeah, because as much as everyone hates Voldemort, I think Harry Potter fans hate Umbridge more. I was literally about to say that. They do. They hate Umbridge more than Voldemort, which is kind of wild when you think about it. So I actually, I have two questions for you in relation to that. First question, why do you think that is? And second question... Which of them do you think is actually the bigger villain? So I think the reason why, and it's sort of a lead into my answer to the second question, is Umbridge is the kind of evil we are more likely to experience in our lives. She's the kind of evil she expects. She's incredibly bigoted. um, She's cruel. She's in a position of authority that she abuses. And so I think Umbridge is an exaggeration that... I don't think most of us are ever going to meet someone quite like Umbridge. But I think a lot of us are going to, you know, run in with someone who's very bigoted or someone who uses their position of authority to be really cruel. Yeah. I'm sorry. Are you reading off of my notes? Like, how did you... (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, and so th- I think that's why everyone hates her more because Umbridge yeah, is the villain you recognize. Umbridge is the villain you know you're going to see in your life. And I, I get it. Like, I do kind of think Umbridge is worse because Voldemort's so over the top. He causes a great deal of death and destruction, but he's a clear evil you can fight. And, yeah. like, you know, if you're a Death Eater, you're evil. If you follow Voldemort, you're clearly evil. Umbridge, yeah. she's part of something that's supposed to be good. She's part of the Ministry of Magic. Yeah. Like, she's not, everything about her shouldn't be evil, but she is. And so I kind of do think Umbridge is more evil because when Voldemort's gone, people like Umbridge are still going to exist. Yeah. I and mean, they're always going to exist. In the spectacular words of Sirius Black, the world isn't split into good people and Death Eaters. And Umbridge is like the big sort of example of that is even if you save the day, you get rid of the big evil, the world There's will still just bad people. Yeah. They're still going to be Umbridges. I don't know that I would say Umbridge is a bigger villain. To me, I do think she might be more terrifying. I think that might be a distinction. Yeah, I think for that's me. a better way to say it. Yeah, yeah I, 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 I have trouble with that there. too because I do weirdly, like most people, I think I have a more visceral reaction to her, and it's pretty much for exactly all of the reasons you said. She's, you know, she's the evil that's more real to me. I think, you know, yeah. even though most of us hopefully we'll never experience anyone quite as terrible as Umbridge. Like, I think most of us can think of some authority figure in our past who used their position in ways that they shouldn't have, you know? And that's really what Umbridge is. Because we also have sort of her compared to Snape. Because Snape's the teacher you hate. You just, the teacher doesn't like you. You don't like the teacher. But he's not evil in the way Umbridge is evil. Like, yeah, he gives right. very zeros Snape's and he bully. shouldn't. He's a bully. He's and mean. verbally abusive to his students. <laughs> he's not a great teacher. I mean, he's he's good at potions, but he, he's not a good teacher due to the no. way he treats, teaches his pupils. But yeah, he's like that professor that was just there for the research and really shouldn't have been allowed like, around yeah. the people. <laughs> that's the exactly who Snape is. But that's not who Umbridge is. No. Umbridge is there to be cruel. That yeah. is what she, she's not, she doesn't care about defense against the dark arts. She is there for power. In fact, quite the opposite. <laughs> yeah. Because this is why the Dumbledore Army forms is because they're not allowed to do magic anymore in defense against the dark arts. It should only be theoretical. Yikes. Because theory is what's going to save you against Voldemort. Yeah, so I definitely see why people hate Umbridge so much. And this is not the end for Umbridge either. And we're going to no. see kind of why no, sadly not. sort of everyday kind of evil is so terrible yeah she is and gonna why, come back despite the fact that you know we said she's the person that plays within the rules or maybe because of it we actually see her come back almost as an even more prominent and overt villain yeah this is not the end of umbridge but i think it's the end of umbridge for this book at least so i think we should move on good riddance <laughs> We can forget about her for at least one book. Yeah. Um, So let's talk about what this book is really all about, or the big reveal in this book, I should say. The Prophecy. The Prophecy. Which, even though we've been rereading the series, and I've literally read all of the first four books before this, I'd forgotten it takes this long to find out about The Prophecy. It is, you know... When, when you've read a series so as much as we have read Harry Potter and you go into it kind of knowing all the things that come later, you kind of forget what it was like not to know up until that moment. Because this was right. a huge reveal. It was a huge reveal. We learned so much in this book. Yeah. We find out why Voldemort tried to kill Harry. We find out 
why Dumbledore has been acting the way he has and why a lot of the things that have happened to Harry have happened. And it essentially, really, it sets the course for the rest of the series. The rest, yeah. the next we two also, books hinge on this prophecy and the discussion that they have about it. Yeah, we also learned that Neville could have been the chosen one, which really shifts the way Harry and I think the way the reader views Neville. Yeah, and I think this book does some really great things to set that up, and really the series does as a whole, but we get some great parallels between Harry and Neville in this book that you kind of notice more after you know about the prophecy. Yeah. But we see for the first time actually what's happened to Neville's parents in person. We already knew what happened, but we actually meet them this time. And so we sort of have that parallel between what happened to Harry's parents and what happened to Neville's parents who weren't killed, but who were still effectively taken from him by Voldemort's followers. Yeah. We they get have very parallel lives because we've sort of had this reference throughout that Neville's grandmother is quite strict. She's she she's is. No, she's not the Dursley. She's for sure. not. She's Neville definitely had a more better loving, but she is strict. Harry, but she's very strict, and I think Neville hasn't had an easy upbringing either. He better hasn't. Than Harry's for sure, but not easy. He hasn't, and you know, we also get in this book his reaction to Bellatrix and the other Death Eaters escaping, kind of a similar fallout to when Sirius escaped in book three, and how difficult that was for Harry. And then at the end of the book, we also see significantly and i think this was probably an intentional choice we see neville as the last one standing alongside harry when he's fighting the death eaters everyone else is too injured to keep going but neville's still up there beside harry fighting and also significantly i think he is the only person other than harry to actually touch the prophecy which i did not notice until this read oh wow i you're right now, I don't think I that's like, a thing where, you know, I think it's that one of the prophecy subjects is, has to be the one to take it down. After that, right. I think anybody can touch it. But I yeah. think it's significant that the only p- other person who actually does is Neville. Because it could have been about because him. Because it could have been about him. Yeah. And it also, there's this line right before they get on the Thestrals to leave where I think it's Harry sort of thinking to himself that of everyone in the DA, Neville, Luna, and Jenny were the three he would least like to come with him. Which, Which I take a little bit of fault with, because I, I definitely would have picked Jenny. Yes. He, first of well, all. I think <laughs> we're learning how, it's sort of one of Harry's blind spots. Is he sees Jenny as the little sister. And so yeah, he and I think he also he feels ha- protective not, of her. Right, so he hasn't paid attention to the, like, she's a really good witch. And then Luna, everyone's like, oh, she's oh, like, Looney. Luna's the best. I wish <laughs> we had time to talk about Luna in this episode, too. Yeah, she's I got so many her. like weird sort of beliefs. She's like discounted, even though she's also like there's a reason she's a ravenclaw she's smart she's talented she's just sort of doing her own thing yeah and then neville is i think from the beginning i've said neville has like a really strong character we talked about it in our episode about book one but harry always remembers like oh neville can't remember anything neville's really bad at potions in all the classes except herbology and he sort of doesn't notice that neville's getting better Neville's yeah. learning how to stand up for himself and to do stuff. And it's I'm just really excited. I love Neville, and I get really excited about where his storyline's going because it's so good. Yeah, Neville's great. And to bring it back, back to the prophecy itself a little bit, I also think it's interesting that despite the fact that I think we could generally call it a more run-of-the-mill prophecy where it's like what the prophecy says has to come to pass, I do think it also shows some interesting elements of self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. 
My favorite kind of prophecy. Because, yeah, that's that's the best kind. Because Voldemort had to mark one of the boys for them to become the second figure of the prophecy. That's what the prophecy says, if you actually pay attention to it. And the Dark Lord will mark him as his equal. If Voldemort hadn't done that, it's entirely possible that neither of the boys would have become the second figure in the prophecy. And even more importantly, knowing what we know from book seven, the latter part of the prophecy, neither can live while the other survives, wouldn't have been a possibility if Voldemort had never tried to kill Harry because he wouldn't have accidentally turned him into a horcrux. It's also one of those interesting things because in most, like, there's sort of two kinds of prophecies in stories. There's the kind where, like, once you know the prophecy, it must happen. Like, knowing the prophecy ensures that it will happen. And there's the other kind where, like, if you know the prophecy, you can change it. Yeah. And it's really interesting because this is a case, and this is sort of always the case where, like, the prophecy must come true is the character tries to change it they're like okay i know this has been prophesied so I'm yeah gonna and then it. and in trying to change it they cause it they make it happen yeah and like this is not lit- literary but if you watch the old disney tv show that's so raven you know <laughs> what i'm talking about um oh my that's gosh. every episode of that show what a reference thing um and then again i'm going to talk about movies but minority reports kind of the other one where yeah by knowing what's going to happen you can change it yeah and i think we only really have this one good example of prophecy so it's hard to say but i do think just based on what we know that this is sort of the kind where knowing the prophecy you are destined to fulfill it once you know the prophecy like you have it's going to happen i'd like it'd be interesting to know in this world what happens do the prophecies happen if you don't know like what happens if if neither of them had known what would have happened would it still come to pass or would it not have i think if snape had overhauled and told voldemort i don't think it would have happened no because i don't think voldemort still might have killed james and lily just because they were very powerful Powerful, yeah you know they were clearly on his his list yeah i mean they already Um, faced him three times but i don't know that he would have tried to kill harry i mean it might have just been like ah baby's here i'll just kill him because i'm evil but yeah i don't know i'm not at all sure that it would have yeah, so I think that's really interesting. And yeah, and just by like choosing to act on the prophecy, like Voldemort sort of created his own demise is very interesting. Although this is, we're going to talk about Dumbledore for a second because it sort of is frustrating in this book because Dumbledore's like, okay, I'm finally coming clean. I'm going to tell but you everything. He isn't. Oh, he's not. We know Dumbledore, from the last two books that big, fat, adorable liar. Dumbledore left a lot out. He yeah. didn't tell Harry about the he's Horcruxes like, oh, yet. Oh, I'm going to lay it all out now and yeah. then in book seven he's like <laughs> just kidding i well, kept book the seven, biggest he's secrets like, for last i made snape tell you because i couldn't deal with telling you that you are in fact a horcrux and you've got to die or voldemort can't it's just yeah. like you sort of okay, understand dumbledore. why <laughs> dumbledore's so hesitant in that case like he doesn't want to tell harry because he knows that as long as harry has to die that is harry's destiny yeah but yeah it's very frustrating that dumbledore's like makes this big deal of coming clean with Harry now that he's old yeah. enough to know the truth. I mean, and he I think at this so point, particularly with hindsight being what it is for those of us who have read the entire series, which I hope is everyone since we keep just dropping spoilers left and right. I mean, once but, you've gotten to like book three or four, they're not going to be able to wait to keep up with us. If somebody had made it this far without reading, if anybody like were point, reading the series for the through. first time with us, gosh, I hope they have just read all the way through to the yeah, end. Yeah, there gets to a point where you can't stop. 
Like, the yeah. only reason I waited between books is because they weren't okay, out Okay, you were yet. also notoriously impatient, though, so you're not a great judge to go by. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but yeah, I think, not I think very we are definitely, for sure, no more ifs, ands, or buts about it, seeing how fallible Dumbledore is. Yeah. You know? And I don't want to talk about it too much yet, because I think that's, like, basically all we're going to talk about in book seven. I mean, I don't know about all, Not the only thing, but it'll be a big part of book seven, is because seven's where the truth kind of comes out about Dumbledore, and we're going to learn in a big way just how fallible Dumbledore was. He wasn't the perfect wizard that I think Harry sort of built him up to be. And his readers were starting to get that picture, but I don't think Harry's not there yet. Harry doesn't get there till book seven. Yeah, Yeah, so I guess we're going to wrap it up now, uh, because this has been a long one. (laughs) Yeah. Thanks for hanging in there with us. I guess it's time to determine the Harry Potter angst and sassometer. And I think we can all agree that they're off the charts in this one. So how about sass? What would you give it? Um, nine. Okay. I'm going to go lower than that because I know where we're going next book. So I'd give He's it like a, a little seven. room to grow. Yeah. He's, there's some comments in this one, though. That we, are... get, we get some good lines. You know, I wonder what it would be like to have a difficult life, that kind of thing. But yeah, I, I think this is not Pete Carey sass. Okay. What about angst? I want you to say yours first for angst, because I have an answer. Okay, I have an answer too, and <laughs> you may disagree with me, because I struggled a little with this one, basically because my feeling on this is there are worse things to come. We know there are worse things to come. But in terms of Harry's reactions to them and how he's struggling personally... And I could be misremembering. I might feel differently after, you know, say, rereading book seven mm-hmm. or something a few books from now. But I really don't think it gets gets worse than this in terms of Harry's mm-hmm. personal angst and feelings. So I think this is peak angst. I think we have achieved peak Harry Potter angst. I'm giving it a 10. So I am going to strongly disagree. This is not a 10. This is clearly a 15. <laughs> <laughs> Off the charts. You cheater. <laughs> so I made you, you go cheat. first I was, so I could cheat. When you said that, I was like, is she going to give this a five? Who? We can't even be sisters anymore. What's wrong with her? Okay, 15 I'll allow. It's still cheating, but I'll allow it. <laughs> okay. Um, and then we've got to talk about Hermione. Yeah. I mean, she didn't kidnap anyone in this book. She still blackmails Rita again. She but does. she didn't kidnap anyone. So I'm definitely going to have to go like, down she Hermione has her moments in this one though she has her no I mean she straight up jinxes the member list for the DA so that if anyone tells their face will explode in pimples that say sneak that's pretty that's pretty you know yeah I wanted to say a word that I probably can't say keeping this PG um (laughs) it's pretty it's pretty uh savage yeah and she's all you know she's the one with the idea to defy umbrage to begin with so I don't I'd, I'd probably give her like a in terms of Hermione, this would be way higher for anyone else. But just knowing Hermione and where she could go, I'd give it like a 6.5 or 7. I was going to give it a 7. So yeah. I think we're in agreement It's like there. a crazy savage, but for Hermione, comparing it to kidnapping a woman and keeping her in a jar. <laughs> keeping her in a jar. Man, Hermione's good. Yeah. And I also, I know we're not rating Ron, but I just do have to say, if we were gonna, in this book, I would give him peak loyalty for the way he asks if anyone else's parents have a problem with Harry after he finds out that Seamus's mom doesn't believe him about Voldemort. Because that was... Ron is, like, the most loyal in this book. He's so good. When Whenever anyone's, like, 
not believe in Harry. He's like, I'm a prefect. You got a problem with Harry? You got detention. Yeah. (laughs) It's great. Okay. So I think we have got to wrap it up here because we have just been going on for so long. So I want to say a quick thank you to Sahara Sky for the use of our theme song, Never Long Time Goes By, from the album Escapism. And thank you for listening. You can get in touch with us by tweeting at unassignedpod over on Twitter or emailing us at unassignedreadingpod at gmail.com. We love to hear your thoughts and questions. And if you're enjoying the show so far, head on over and leave us a positive review on iTunes or wherever else you get your podcasts. Yeah, it only takes a minute, and it makes a really, really big difference. Reviews and tweeting about the show are the two best ways to help spread the word and let other people know that you're enjoying it. And we'd really love for even more people to find the show. We'll be back on Friday, September 14th, for another episode of Book Talk. And next month, we'll be reading Strange the Dreamer. Uh, I am not familiar with that Harry Potter book. Well, that's because we're going to be taking a short break from our Harry Potter series next month for an episode we are very excited to share with you, Strange the Dreamer by Lainey Taylor. The sequel, News of Nightmares, is coming out this October, and we just couldn't resist the opportunity to discuss this incredible fantasy book before it does. Yeah, it's going to be coming out the last Friday of the month, September 28th, just a few days before the release of News of Nightmares, and trust us, you're not going to want to miss this one. It's one of our longest and most epic episodes yet, although this one may beat it now. Yeah. Um, So we hope you'll join us again next month. And in the meantime, we leave you with these words of wisdom. Don't worry. You're just as sane as I am. (laughs) 